Our students are wrapping up right now a weekend called Disciple Now. A disciple uh, is the call for the Great Commission, isn't it? Go make disciples of, of all nations. And so we make a concentrated effort a, a couple times a year with the students to get them away uh, for an extended period of time to uh, put them under the teaching of God's Word, the discipleship of their life group leaders, more than just on a Wednesday night, but through an entire weekend where they go through multiple sessions of uh, a theme, uh, which this year is called Called Out, Called Out from Your Sin, uh, Called Out to a Life Lived for the Glory of God by the, the, the commands that God has called us to live as Christians, and also the, be called out to be ambassadors, stewards of the message of the gospel, to go and share that with, with the world. Uh, that's because we're called disciples. That word disciple uh, comes from the Greek word mathetes, which means pupil, student, learner. And that's what the call is of discipleship, at least in its basic form, is a call to learn and really a call to follow. And so it's not just a call to the students. It's a call to anyone who claims to know Christ we are called to be followers of Christ, that we're following him. And that comes with it, a necessary element of teaching, of instruction, not just with knowledge, but of living. And so it's not enough to that we know Christ intellectually. It's not that we have the information of Christ. It's that we, uh, changed by our response to the work of the cross, that is responding to Christ by turning from our sins, placing our trust in Christ, and dwelt with the Holy Spirit, we are now, with the information we've been given in the Word of God, uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and in conjunction with the community of Christ, the believers, we then live and follow Christ. We live for Christ, and we follow Christ. That's the call to make disciples. As a matter of fact, if Jesus were living here in the hill country these days, it may go something like this. If you're an oil-filled worker in here, you know, as we look at the call of Jesus on the disciples, if you were an oil well worker, Jesus would say something like this, follow me and I will make you an extractor of men. Isn't that nice? That, that would resonate with an oil worker, wouldn't it? Like, I get that. I get that concept. Right? If you're a medical worker, Jesus would say, follow me and I will make you restore people to life eternal. Like, I know you're, you're, you're doing a lot of great things in the medical field, and maybe you should still do that, but really I'm using that concept to show you what it means to make disciples. You want to restore people to eternal life. If you're a photographer, Jesus would say something like, follow me, and I will make you capture souls. Right? We're going to capture moments. We're going to capture videos. We're here to capture souls. See, Jesus often used uh, familiar uh, circumstances and elements of the lives of people that he called to himself to get them to understand that uh, there is something I'm calling you away from and something I'm calling you Toward. In calling us, not even just the disciples, but in calling us uh, to uh, salvation to be a disciple, and we'll get to the, uh, we'll get there in a moment about the uh, demarcation, unnecessary demarcation we would make when it comes to the, the two, our salvation and our call to be a disciple. But in calling you, you know, Jesus meets you where you are. I love that about Jesus, don't you? That he meets you where you are. If you're a fisherman, he meets you there when you're, when you're fishing. He meets you as a medical worker. He meets you there. Wherever you are in life, that's where Jesus meets you. But he, he meets you where you are and calls you to where he's going. And the call to be a disciple of Christ is to say, I'm going where you're calling me to go. Which means that I can no longer stay where I'm at. Which isn't that the call to salvation. Jesus is calling us to himself, 
into relationship with him, into a life lived for him, and into eternity, which is, necessitates me turning away, or the word we use is repent, turning away from the life I lived before and following Christ. See, Jesus never called anyone to follow him without calling them to renounce their life in the process. We see that throughout all of Scripture, that Jesus never says, follow me, but yet live in the same world, live in the same life, don't change anything about your life, just kind of add me onto the side. It was always a renunciation of the life that we were living and a turn toward a life lived for, for Christ. Really, it's simple at least the concept, is that Christianity does not lead you to follow Jesus, or a Christianity that does not lead you to follow Jesus' teachings and participate in his mission is no Christianity at all. We must know that. Right? That if, this, if the Christianity that you claim to know or a Christianity you've been taught doesn't include and isn't centered on Jesus' teaching and a participation in the mission of Christ to make disciples, that, in fact, is not Christianity at all. You see, people make an unnecessary demarcation between uh, being a Christian and, and being a disciple. Some people even say it like this. Uh, you know, Christianity is, uh, for me, when I want to follow Christ, uh, disciple. being a disciple is just the really serious Christians. You know, that, that, they're the serious ones. They're the ones who take it serious. And I ask, well, give me a Christian who doesn't take their faith serious, and you would give me someone who is probably not a Christian. Right? To say that I'm a Christian is to say that I'm a disciple. And to say that I'm a disciple is to say that I'm a Christian. And like I referenced earlier in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus never said, go and make Christians and converts, did he? He said, go and make disciples. That's exactly right. Go and make disciples. Now, I'm not here to crusade against the, the term Christian. I'm a Christian. I call myself a Christian pretty much every single day. Uh, but uh, the goal is to understand that if you have made a distinction in your life, a personal distinction or maybe a cultural distinction between what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a disciple, I at least want us this morning to admit that it's a distinction you've made that isn't found in Scripture. The distinction that you make or culture has made about Christianity and being a disciple is not a distinction that we find in Scripture. In Scripture, a Christian is a disciple and a disciple is a Christian. Even the history of being called a Christian, it was non-Christians calling disciples Christians. That's where the name came from, in Antioch. And it wasn't even Christians calling each other Christians. It was non-Christians calling disciples Christians. That's just how they, they named, they called them these things, little Christ. And for us, we have to say, okay, I get that people make a distinction, but I at least have to admit that the Bible doesn't make that distinction. Christ doesn't make that distinction. So if I'm a Christian, I'm a disciple. If I'm a disciple, I'm a Christian. See, that should do something for us this morning as we look to the call of a disciple there in Matthew 4 to recognize the call to be a disciple isn't only given to a select few people. Right? The call of being a disciple isn't said, well, that's for the super serious ones, but for the rest of us, we're just called to be Christians. And the reality of the matter is for everyone who calls themselves a follower of Christ is a Christian and is a disciple. And you say, well, what about the 12? They, they literally called a small group out, 12 of them. Well, you read the Bible and you read the New Testament, you find out there's many more than 12 disciples. Uh, Jesus sends out the 12, but then he sends out the 72. Uh, not only that, uh, when Judas uh, betrays Jesus and they're in the book of Acts and they said, well, we need to, another disciple, uh, what was the parameters of finding another disciple? we got to go find somebody who has been there with us since the beginning. And then they go and they cast lots, and Matthias is picked out of the lot of all the other people who were with him. Not just that, in the upper room, we understand that it wasn't just a room full, and not to mean upper room, I mean the Pentecost. It wasn't just a group of 
12 or 11 disciples, was it? It was a room full of disciples of Christ. And so although that we do see a lot of the life of the 12 disciples, we need to recognize throughout the life of Jesus, he had many disciples. And actually, that was the only name for people who followed Christ, were disciples. And so in the same way, we must recognize that the call to follow Christ is, is indeed a call to salvation. But for us, particularly in the church age, is also a call to salvation, is synonymous with the call to be a disciple. Now, caveat, I get... And I would understand that you would say something like, well, every Christian isn't going through discipleship in the way that you may understand discipleship. Uh, that's true. That is very true. There's a lot of Christians who lack discipleship, but it doesn't mean that they're not a disciple. They would just be a, a weak disciple or a lacking disciple. It doesn't change the nature of who they are. It may change the quality of them, of their identity as disciples, but it doesn't change the fact that they are disciples. Are we on the same page there? We got to be or we can't move on. So I'm glad we're on the same page. Since we're on the same page intellectually, why don't we flip to the same page in our Bibles? Why don't you flip over to Matthew 4? Matthew 4, in, starting in verse 18. We just got to understand that anyone who, who follows Jesus must change the direction of their life and become a disciple who makes disciples. That's, that's the mission of Christ to, to all people. Turn from your sin, place your trust in me, imitate my life, and let's, let's go make disciples. It's, it's the Great Commission. Remember, that is Jesus' name, isn't it? Jesus, it's uh, Greek, right? Isus comes from uh, the Hebrew. Uh, Yeshua, which you know in the Old Testament, there is a really important character in the Old Testament named Joshua. Well, and Joshua means Yahweh saves. It's the same name given to Jesus. And Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew, and Matthew says, his, his name shall be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name of Jesus tells you everything you need to know about the mission of Jesus. Yahweh saves. Jesus came to bring salvation to the world. And so what we're seeing here is Jesus, uh, in our third installment of Trials and Triumph, is Jesus triumphing over the temptations of Satan, uh, him being in his ministry preparation. He's full of the Spirit now since the baptism of John. And now Jesus saves, now goes and grabs his first disciples to say, I'm going to teach you the mission so you will go continue this mission from now until the end of the age. That's the context of where we pick up here in Matthew 18. And so let's look at the process that Jesus used to equip people to continue this mission of making disciples. Look there in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them in verse 19, follow me. Skip to verse 21. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. So in this text, we see Jesus calling Peter, Andrew, James, and John into a particular kind of relationship. This relationship uh, would be what you would call a rabbi-discipleship relationship or a teacher-pupil relationship. It's a particular kind of relationship that was not unusual in the first century. You have a rabbi, which is very common in that time. They called him teacher. You notice that actually the disciples called Jesus teacher throughout the New Testament because it means rabbi. Okay, And so it wasn't uncommon in the first century for a, a young man to want to follow a rabbi, a teacher, uh, because that was the goal. The child, as he's been raised in his home, has learned the Torah, has learned the law of God, has learned all the necessary elements to be a, a Jewish boy, and they celebrate that at the bar mitzvah, right? You, you know a little bit of that cultural context. And then from that moment, uh, they keep growing in their understanding, and then as they become a, a, a teenager, 
or young adult, they're able to then go follow a teacher, a rabbi, for a few years. And it's from that place where they have to obey everything that the rabbi says and the teacher, live and imitate the life completely of the rabbi. And so that's, that's the relationship of a rabbi and a teacher. And we have to see that uh, because what I don't want you to think about when you look at this text is to say, four random guys followed one random man. It's like, isn't that, what, isn't that what you thought when you've read this in the past? I have. I'm like, why? Who are these men? Why did they do this? Well, part of it is understanding that there is a distinct rabbi-disciple relationship within the cultural context of the first century. But it isn't only that. I want you to notice this, too. Is The scene that we see in Matthew 4, particularly 18 through 22, isn't the first time these men met Jesus. That's important for you to understand when it comes to wondering, are these crazy yeah, teens just following some stranger? Absolutely not. These men already knew Jesus, and they had a desire to know him more. I can prove that by you jotting down or flipping to John 1. John 1, in verses 35 through 42, here's what it says. John 1, 35 through 42. This is the baptism of, this is at the John the Baptist baptism, and a day after Jesus' baptism. It says the next day after Jesus' baptism, that is, Again, John was standing with two of his disciples. We know for a fact one of those disciples is Andrew, and the other disciple could possibly be John, and we know that because uh, in the book of John, in the gospel of John, John actually never calls himself John. He always says uh, the other disciple, or sometimes he says the disciple whom Jesus loved. Wouldn't you like to quote yourself as the, as the disciple Jesus loved when you wrote your gospel? And that's how he did it. And so it's not necessarily going to be named here, but you'll see it later. Andrew is named explicitly with another disciple. And so if that were the case, we see that Andrew and John are here presently even during the baptism of Jesus. Why is that important? Where was the baptism of Jesus? Down at the Dead Sea close to the Jordan. Where are they now? The Sea of Galilee. And so there's a, quite a bit of time and geographical location change of them, at least where we know he knew Jesus or they knew of Jesus, and where they actually have the call to follow Jesus. Why is all that important? Just so you see that these aren't just careless teenage wanderers following a stranger. I mean, these are men who knew something of the Messiah. They knew, uh, they knew something of John the Baptist said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And these men, and it says here in verse 36, John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God. And then the two disciples heard him, and, and they wanted to follow Jesus, 37. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to him, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, remember, teacher, Teacher, where are you staying? Because they want to go with him. Verse 39, he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. For it was about the tenth hour. One of those two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So there we go. Name of one of the disciples is Andrew. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And then he brought Simon Peter to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So you at least set up right here where you recognize, hey, wait a minute. These men knew Jesus before Jesus had called them from their boats fishing. And it's important for us because we don't want to just look at these men as careless teenage wanderers, but men who knew the messianic expectations of the Old Testament. Men who understood the witness of John the Baptist and Jesus' own personal witness as well. Now, am I saying that these disciples knew everything that was meant by Messiah? Absolutely not. 
And these men had their own ideas of what they thought Messiah was going to do, but it did not keep them from understanding the necessity to follow the one who is the Messiah. Their decision of following Christ was also an informed decision. And this informed decision was their their necessary decision to forsake their life and follow the Messiah. Because remember, to follow a rabbi means that you forsook your way of life and you took on the way of life of the rabbi, of the master, of the Messiah. And in the same way, these same disciples are saying, we got to forsake our ways and follow the way of our rabbi, who is also the Messiah. It's important Because for us, if we say we follow Jesus, we must be able to embrace the totality of Jesus' teaching and mission. You understand? That's what it means to be a disciple. We don't get to follow bits and pieces of Jesus' life or his mission or his command. We can't take Jesus a la carte. I take what I like. I take what I don't want. We have to understand biblically the call to discipleship is, and the call to being a disciple means that I know Jesus and I follow Jesus. And so you should sum it up this way in point number one. You need to get to know Jesus. Get to know Jesus. If you guys can keep working on my, uh, my mic, please. It's humming quite a bit over the speakers. Get to know Jesus. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Maybe even a little bit elementary. Right? I mean, the goal of Christ is never to make anything so difficult and so complicated that you can't do it. I mean, the call to follow Jesus is to know Jesus, which is why it took so much time to show you that these disciples knew Jesus before they went to follow him. Because it wasn't some random act of following for some adventure. They weren't just looking for the next big adventure and they were bored helping their dad fish. You know, these men said, I am forsaking my life to follow Jesus because I know him. I was there when he was baptized. I was there when the prophet John the Baptist said, this is the one. And we are going to go follow the one. They knew him. But what's the problem with this simple concept of getting to know Jesus is there's a lot of people who claim to know Jesus who do not follow Jesus. And that's why we need to take serious the goal and the role of knowing who Jesus is. We need to know him. We need to know Jesus and know him how he's been revealed to us, which is in Scripture. Because, you know, Matthew 7.23 says there's a lot of people, there are a whole lot of people, who claim to know Jesus who will never be with him in eternity. Isn't that, isn't that a scary passage? It's a scary passage to say, there's people who are going to say, Lord, 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 didn't we do all these things in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus is saying, there's people who said that they're going to know me, and that they do know me, and when they're face to face with me at the judgment, they're going to say, we did all these things in your name. And Jesus is going to say one really clear statement, I never knew you. And so we have to then ask ourselves, do we know Jesus or do we know of Jesus? Because a disciple knows Jesus because he's a follower of Jesus. He doesn't just know of Jesus or about Jesus. He knows Jesus. And that's important because it's not just statements of fact about who Christ was, that he existed in the first century, that he was a very charismatic leader. I mean, that's, okay, I know about him, but do I know him? Do I know that his mission was to come to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, is what Paul says? Do I recognize that my role in this relationship is to turn away from my sin and place my trust in Christ and then to take on the identity of Christ because that's what he has done on my behalf is he has traded my sin for his righteousness. I take on the righteousness of Christ and then I live the rest of my life according to his message and his mission, period. That's, that's what it means to, to know Christ, at least the basics. And then you spend the rest of your life learning what it means to follow Christ. But it can't be knowing things about Christ. It can't be having an intellectual understanding of the things Christ has done. It has to be a real, I know him. 
I mean, you know a lot of things about the presidents of the United States, but do you know them? You may know a lot of things about a lot of popular and famous people, but you don't know them, and they don't know you. And the reality of the matter is we got to know Jesus. And if we're going to follow him, and maybe this is even for you if you're not a Christian in here, particularly if you're not a Christian, get to know Jesus like the disciples knew Jesus before they started following him. I know there's a little bit of difference in the context of being a first century Jew and being a, an individual in the church age. But the point of the matter is this, that they knew him, and so the confidence to follow him was there. And for you, it's like, get to know him, and you're going to have a great confidence to follow everything he says. Because who he says he is is genuinely who he is and what he's about. Getting to know Jesus, and you ask, how do I do that? How do I get to know Jesus? Well, you get to know Jesus by going to Scripture to know who Jesus is. And everyone's like, well, why do you always put God in a box? I didn't. I didn't. What I did is God wrote us a bunch of letters describing and telling us in no uncertain terms who he is. And just like if you or, you know, my mom who's maybe, maybe she wrote a lot of letters before she died. It's an illustration. My mom's alive. Uh, and I read them for the rest of my life. And my mom spends a lot of time writing, here's who I am. Here's what I stood for. I love you. And I want to let you know all the things I've wanted you to know that I couldn't tell you. And I'm going to read that. And I'm, and, you know, I'm going to read those. And I'm going to say, this is what my mom's all about. And you know what? No one would ever come to me and say, why you put your mom in a box? You'd be like, that's, that's really messed up, isn't it? You would say, this is how my mom is related to who she is to me. This is how she communicates with me. Right? And when it comes to my relationship with Christ, it, it transcends that because not only do I have God's word in my hands, I have God's spirit inside me if I'm a Christian. So I have the testimony of the spirit in me that's opening my eyes to the word of God, and I have the word of God, and I have the people of God who are confirming who, who Christ is in my life. So I don't put God in a box. I use the resources that God has given me to live out the mission and the message of who Christ is. But we do need to get to know him in Scripture. And it is that familiarity with Christ through Scripture that gives me confidence in following him. You know people like that, people who are just not so sure about who Christ is, and they may be saved genuinely. I mean, they may at least know enough to know I need to turn from my sins and place my trust in Christ, but they spend the rest of their life uh, every, every prayer is, I just want to know the will of God. Just help me. Just pray for me that God may reveal this. And it's like, don't you know him? Like, don't you know him? Do you open up the word of God and know him? We sit under the teaching of God's word in the, in the congregation, and don't we know him? Right? When we're in a small group together and we, we study the Bible, don't you know him? Like, I can spend less time wondering what the will of God is and more time knowing what the will of God is simply by just saying, what does Jesus say his will is? The will of God is that none should perish but all to come to eternal life. So anything that you would do that would uh, aid or participate in the advancement of the gospel is smack dab in the will of God. One of the problems that we have as Christians is we're not so concerned about the will of God. We're concerned with how we can make the will of God things that we want to participate in. Now, that's not a disciple, is it? A disciple is someone who takes Jesus' message and Jesus' mission and makes it their own. Not who tries to get the rabbi or the master or the Messiah to move a little bit over here and start doing my will. See, that, when we will define being a disciple in the right terms, it starts helping us understand our whole role as as Christians. I'm here to do the will of God by taking on the mission and the message of the Messiah. So, what are those things? You know, I know at least 
fundamentally some very important things to the life of Jesus. One of them, submitting to the will of God. We talk about that a lot, don't we? You know, Jesus submitted to the will of the Father quite frequently. It's important that as Jesus, who is the teacher, would submit to the will of God, that all of his followers would also submit to the will of God, even above their own comfort and above their own desire. That Jesus did it, and it should be something that we participate in regularly. That Jesus spent his entire ministry seeing lost people saved. That we would also be spending our time seeing lost people saved. And then the last thing that Jesus says to his disciples when he leaves is he says, Go and make disciples. The disciples may ask a question, how do I know what he was all about? He he said a lot of things in three years, you know what I'm saying? Like, he said a lot. How do I know what he really wants me to do? Jesus, before he goes to the right hand of the Father, says, in case you wanted a summary of what it means to be a disciple, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I will be with you until the end of the age. Summary of the whole life of the disciple. We are here to go make disciples. Can you work at the medical office and make disciples? Yes. Can you work in the oil field and make disciples? Yes. Can you be a photographer and make disciples? Yes. But your identity isn't a photographer, isn't a medical worker, and isn't an oil field worker. Your identity is a disciple. And your life is framed and motivated and moved and encouraged through that identity and nothing else. And unfortunately, one of the biggest reasons that professing Christians don't make disciples, and listen, church, one of the biggest reasons, and I say professing Christians because I do know a lot of these people are professing and not genuine, but I think there's also a cohort that are Christians, okay, but I still think the problem is the same. They don't know enough about Jesus to lead someone else to follow Jesus. And that is one of my, the biggest concerns is people, I know a lot of people say, I'd love to help people follow Jesus. Well, let's go do it. I don't know how. That's why you're called a disciple, because you have to learn how. And the call to salvation and the call to be a disciple is synonymous. So if you say you're a Christian, you have the responsibility, and there I might say the stewardship, to know how to lead other people to follow Christ. Isn't that what a follower is? Someone who shows other people how to follow? Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Look at verse 19. We talk about what happens when... We know Jesus, and and what what changes in my life? What what does my life look like? Look at verse 19. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I love it. You know, fishing was second only to agriculture in the region of Galilee. I mean, there were two big important things going on economically in Galilee. One was fishing, and the other one was agriculture. And you know how Jesus usually talked to his people? Through parables of agriculture, and fishing. Why? Because Jesus knows how to teach you. Jesus knows the needs of his people. And Jesus wants to use what you know to teach you what you don't know. Because you're a disciple. And so he tells them, I'm going to make you fishers of men. You know what was amazing about that is these young men were professional fishers. Like that's, that was what they did. They were professional. They knew the ins and out of fishing. I mean, they knew how to fish. And you know what? Something that we need to learn, they knew how not to fish. Sometimes when I go fishing, I catch more limbs than I do fish. And the problem is because I'm a bad fisherman. To be honest, I probably don't know how to fish. Anytime I catch a fish, I pretend like I know how to fish, but that was luck, okay? 
And the reality of the matter is these men knew how to fish. And so when, they, when they're looking at the call to be fishers of men, they say, I don't know how to do that, but I know how to do this. And I know if I got to learn how to do this like I did all my life, I'm going to have to learn how to be a fisher of men too. On my off day on Monday, I watch uh, a lot of uh, home renovation shows. Anybody? Okay. HGTV. Fixer Upper, mm-hmm, yeah, you know. Uh, Alaska Off the Grid, that's a new one. I've been watching that. That was crazy. Uh, uh, Restoring Galveston, I watched that one. Not my favorite, but it's all right. Uh, <laughs> but what I, what I find amazing about it, number one, like I enjoy it because it's mindless and I don't have to do it. I'm sure if I were a contractor, I would never do that on my day off. But I'm, I'm sitting there, and one thing I find amazing is like it's so simple, Right, each step that is right. Each step, I got to saw this board at 34 inches. I'm like, got it, right? I was like, you got to nail that nail in. I'm like, I got that, you know. And it's like, oh, you got to screw that in over there. I mean, I got, I can do those things, right? And those individual things seem so simple, but when I put together the whole picture and I, I watch the, everything they do, I say, I can't do that. Right? Anybody with me? Like, they, they, by the end of it, and they take you through the home, and you're like, God, man, that was that. Like, you know, that's what they were doing. Like that, I cannot do that. I can't do that because I never learned how. I don't know how. I'm sure that if a contractor takes me and teaches me and I sit under their, I sit under their discipleship in my life, I would learn how to do those things. But as it is now, I can say, I can hammer a nail, I can screw in a screw, and I can cut a board, but I cannot build a house. And in the same way, when it comes to your life as a disciple, I mean, there's a lot of things you're like, yeah, I mean, I can, I can open up the Bible and, and get someone else to open up the Bible. I get that. And I could say, hey, this is what this passage means. That's what that passage means. Uh, you know, oh, I can go to church and make sure people go to church with me. I can do that. But, but you're asking me to, to look at the whole picture of a disciple? I can't do that. That is, there's so much there. I mean, my life has to follow Christ. I have to know Christ, and then I have to teach people not only what it means to follow Christ, but perhaps in some areas in their life, even what, it, what they think it means that isn't right, and I have to kind of help them you know, navigate uh, sanctification and, and what God would want in their life and what God wouldn't want in their life. How do I do that? It's a very good question. That's why every Christian is a disciple. Because saying that I'm a Christian, and if you do uh, create a distinction between those terms, a lot of times you call yourself a Christian, you say, well, that's not my job. I'm just a Christian. I'm going to leave that up to the disciples. It's like, no, no, no. You are a disciple because you're a Christian. And your job is to help the body of Christ follow Jesus. And it doesn't stop, and it shouldn't stop at you. And we'll get there in a minute. But all this being said... Can you imagine uh, if you watch those home shows, those home renovation shows, and they said, we don't really have any directions for this episode. Uh, we're just all kind of go do what we want to do. Can you imagine what that house would look like? It would not pass inspection. It would not pass code. If you were to live in it, it would collapse on top of you. Be the ugliest house that ever existed, wouldn't it? But isn't that, isn't that the case when it comes to disciples? Like, how do you make a disciple? Can you give me a blueprint of what it means to follow Christ? Well, the problem is that so many people don't have a blueprint. They don't know how to follow Christ. And then years go along in their life, and they look back, and they say, this is a disaster. Because they never knew how to follow Christ. And they had people who called themselves a Christian, but not a disciple. And I hope that's not you. I hope you don't make that distinction. But I know so many do. And what we need is we need to understand that the Bible does give us definitions of what a disciple is and who a disciple is. And there, are, there is a way to define a disciple, and there are a lot of wrong ways to define a disciple. And what I want to make sure that we do here at Compass 
And here, anybody who calls this place home or any biblical church, I hope, any godly church in our community, in, in the world, would reject ambiguous definitions of discipleship. And that's point number two. I want you to reject ambiguous definitions of discipleship. Isn't that the problem, ambiguous definitions? Like, can you, no, no change can be made in ambiguity. Right? I mean, if I say, hey, this is kind of how you build that house, well, you're going to sit there for the rest of your life wondering how to build a house because you just don't know how. It's, it's vague. Vague directions never help anybody. You ever had va- uh, vague directions when you're trying to find a place? Go turn left up yonder. All right? When that dog starts barking, take a left there. All right? <laughs> if someone starts shooting, you've gone too far. Okay? <laughs> like, uh, that's not going to help, is it? All right? It's not really going to help. Uh, I can't imagine these disciples knew everything that was meant by being a fisher of men. I can't imagine they did. But they committed to being a disciple who would learn what it meant to be a fisher of men. There wasn't going to be any ambiguity. There was going to be no vague definitions of what it meant to follow Jesus and do the work and the mission of Christ. There was going to be none of that in the lives of the disciples. And we hope that at our church there is no ambiguity, no vagueness in what it means for us to follow Jesus. One thing, at least here, like, isn't fishers of men, isn't that ambiguous, Pastor Hayden? It is. It could be. At least in its detailed totality, it could be. But, you know, the thing that we have that the disciples didn't is the totality of Scripture. So they say, be fishers of men. And I'm like, okay, what does that mean? And I just keep flipping, don't I? And you and I keep, we keep reading. Oh, that's what it means. Oh, that's what it means. Oh, that's what it means. You get all the way to Revelation, and you're like, wow, that's what it means, all right? You know, you read the whole Bible, you're like, I know what it means. So we don't have an excuse to make ambiguous definitions of a disciple because it's really, really clear, given to you and, my, and me, that a disciple is simply this in four small points. It's somebody who's responded to the gospel by turning from their sin and placing their trust in Christ. I have to do that. Anyone who is a disciple, is a follower of Christ, has to respond to the gospel by turning away from their separation from God and turning to God through Christ. Through Christ's work on the cross, through Christ's life and death and burial and resurrection, it's through him. Through him is how I reconcile my relation and my separation with God. And at that point, I received the Holy Spirit. I love this because even at salvation and even the Holy Spirit drawing me to salvation, I know that every single thing that Christ is asking me to do as a disciple is never done apart from the power and work of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's good news, isn't it? I'm not alone. And then, as a disciple, what do I do? I imitate Jesus' life. See, that can be a hard one if we don't know Jesus. I can imitate my family, my dad. I can walk in his steps because I followed him. You follow, some of you follow your your mom, your dad, your uncle, your grandfather, because you know, you'll watch them their whole life and you know what it means to to do what they did. Well, in the same way, that's what it means to follow Jesus. I know him, I follow him, and so I'm imitating his life. I obey his teaching. And that's a, that's a un, what is it? Not not uncommon, it is uncommon. It's, It's not a very popular part of being a disciple in our culture, is it? But it's interesting, in the Great Commission, in part of making disciples, we are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. So we do have to understand that I have to imitate Jesus' life, but we also have to obey all of his teachings. Every single thing that Jesus ever said, all of that is at our disposal to submit ourselves in obedience toward. Nothing is left out. Not the hard stuff, not just the easy stuff. All of it is all in our disposal, and at our stewardship to apply to our lives and to our community of believers here with us. 
And then finally, we need to accomplish his mission to make disciples. If you want, in a nutshell, in a, in a concise definition of what it means to be a disciple, there it is. I'm here to make disciples. I'm, I'm here to accomplish his mission, to obey his teaching, to imitate his life. And I have to respond to the gospel before I ever do that. But what is, it, what is not meant by following Christ? What do, I, what do I not mean? Well, here's what I don't mean. I don't, here's, here's what's not meant by saying, I follow Christ. Someone who says, I can follow Jesus but live according to my own rules. That is not what is meant by following Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus came because you kept following your own rules and wouldn't follow God's. So, like, I can't say I'm following Christ if I'm doing the very things that required Christ to come down and die for my sins. So I can't say that I'm a disciple if I'm not following Christ, if I'm following my own way. Some people say, I can have Jesus as my Savior but not participate in his mission. Please, how? Could you tell me how we could do that? Right? How does one say, I'm a follower of Jesus, right? He is the teacher, he is the Messiah, and I am the disciple, he's the rabbi. I have to forsake my way and, and follow the will of my teacher. How can I then do my own will and not do the mission of my Messiah? Right? You see, the point is, if you define these terms biblically, there is no ability to be a disciple without making disciples, because that's what Jesus was all about. Uh, some people understand, I hope you understand, the call to deny yourself, but some people choose themselves daily. I mean, isn't that one of the, the great commands that Jesus gives all disciples? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That is not super comfortable, is it? Uh, it's comfortable to say, you know, today I'm going to do my own thing, and I'm going to, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's the Sabbath. I'm not going to do anything today. I'm going to just do my own thing. Next week, I'll start doing the Lord's things. Uh, or when something hard happens, it's like, that's a hard thing. Like, it's a hard thing to go up to your coworkers and cold turkey start talking to them about Jesus. Or, or even no cold turkey, even just talk to them about Jesus at all, you know, uh, because it's, it's the hard thing to do. Well, I recall the verse. Anyone who wants to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross. That's a very painful thing to take up a cross. Now, he didn't say, like, take up your pillow, you know, take up your bunny. You know, he could have said a lot of different things, but he said, take up your cross. Like, it's going to be unfortunate at times. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be painful. It's not going to be the most attractive thing that you could do today. But if we wanted to follow him, if we want to be a disciple of Christ, we have to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And so I have to deny myself. I can't say I'm a disciple if I cannot deny myself. Remember, well, uh, well you're telling all these works. I'm not telling you all these works. I'm saying that the Holy Spirit is going to work those things in you. It's God who wills and it works for his good pleasure. And if you're saved in this room, that's what the Holy Spirit is going to do in your life. And your job is imitate Christ, follow him. What does a snapshot of a disciple look like? Uh, jot down, we don't have a lot of time, but jot down 2 Timothy. If you want to get there quickly, go ahead, we'll follow along with me. 2 Timothy 2, there in 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We don't look at a snapshot of what a disciple looks like. There, starting in verse 1, it says, You then, Paul the apostle talking to Timothy, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Isn't that step one of living a life of a disciple? Uh, Be strengthened by the unmerited favor that is in Christ Jesus. That's what strengthens me every day. That every day I wake up and say, I don't deserve the grace of Jesus, but he gives it to me anyway. Like that's, that's That's the way I start my day. And that's the way every disciple has to start their day, recognizing that Christ has given them something they don't deserve. Verse two, and what you have heard from me, you remember that Paul and Timothy in our discipleship relationship, Paul is 
Timothy's discipler. Timothy is a disciple of the Apostle Paul. And Paul is getting old. He's about to die. This is one of the last things that Paul says to Timothy in this letter. And this is what Paul has to say to his disciple. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. So he's saying, Timothy, as you followed me, take everything that I've taught you and now have other people follow you which is already happening at this point, but he's restating, you need to make sure this is happening. The things I have passed down to you, you pass down to others. And this is what he keeps saying. You need to entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So he's saying this, it cannot end with you. It's got to keep going. I'm going to give it to you, you're going to give it to somebody, and those people got to keep giving it on to somebody else. One of the problems in our culture of Christianity and our society is it does stop with most of the people who are sitting in churches. Like when, when the mantle of discipleship is handed to the people in our churches and our congregations, it often stops at them. And Paul is saying it can't stop with you. You can't be the stopping point of discipleship. You got to be the conduit and the joint that keeps it going. If Paul is saying, Timothy, give it to somebody else, who gives it to somebody else, who gives it to somebody else, you can't be the somebody else where it stops. you got to keep making disciples. you got to keep going. We have a, a definition of discipleship. We have a definition of what it means to be a disciple. And to be a disciple, i got to continue pouring into people, investing in people, according to Jesus' life, his teachings, and his mission. Then there's a, three little portraits of what a disciple looks like in real time, and that during the time of Timothy and Paul. Verse 3. It says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So a disciple is a lot like a soldier. Verse 4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlists them. A soldier goes through a lot of training to do what they're doing, don't they? They go through a lot of training. They have missions. And those missions got to go to plan. And they got to go in the right order. And you can't step out of line. I don't want Christianity to be a pejorative thing in your mind. I'm just saying the reality of being a good soldier is that you're going to do what your master, what your your leader has enlisted you to do, and that's to please him. So I need to know what it means to please him. Can you imagine a soldier who gets gets into war and they get into battle, and they're like, I know we learned all these things, and I know there's all these things we got to do, but now that we're all here, I got a gun, you got a gun, they told me I'm a soldier, so I'm going to go do my own thing. What's going to happen to that guy? Don't tell me what's going to happen to that guy. What about verse 5? It says, here's a disciple. It's like this. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Again, an athlete, in, in this concept, we're talking about discipleship. And even in 2 Timothy, he's saying this is what it means to continue making disciples. We're like runners. And no one can win a race unless he competes according to the rules. Can you imagine somebody running a lap around the track? And they said, you know what? I found out a way to get there quicker. And he takes off running, and around the first curve, he cuts through the field all the way across, and in record timing, runs across the finish line. He gets there, and he finds out he's disqualified because he didn't compete according to the rules. Like, he didn't understand, or at least he wasn't willing, to take the standards of what it was going to take and then accomplish it in that manner. And what about the, the last one, verse 6? It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. What does a farmer teach us about being a disciple? Process, patience, right? commitment. I didn't grow up on a, uh, on a farm that produced a lot of plants, but I did grow up on a couple of animal farms. And I'm going to tell you something. Being a farmer is all about patience. It's all about pre- preparation. Right? It's all about us saying, you know what? It's not going to be comfortable. You know what's not comfortable? When your cows calve in the dead of winter 
at 3 a.m. in the morning when it's five degrees outside in the snow, and as a farmer, what do you got to do? You got to get up and you got to go out there and make sure that everything's going to order. If everything is alive, everybody's healthy. Being a farmer says there's a lot of sacrifice here. There's a lot of things I've got to do, but that's just part of being a farmer. That's just part of being a runner. That's just part of being a soldier. Well, friends, it's just part of being a disciple. And we, gotta, we, we should be, we must be okay with saying there is some parameters to being a disciple. There is some realities and some genuine definitions of what it means to follow Christ. And I'm not only good with those, those actually allow me to do a good job and be a faithful steward of what God's given me. I don't shirk at training. I embrace it because it's, it's, it allows me to be a disciple who can continue making disciples. And these are vivid roles. These are vividly defined roles of a disciple. People who, at least in the concept, are like soldiers and athletes and farmers. It's a way that we ought to embrace discipleship. Listen to these men's response to the call there in verse 20 and 22, back in our main text. Uh, here's, here's, what they, here's what they say. Here's how they respond to Jesus. Verse 20. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And then there in verse 22. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Can we just notice the manner in which... They followed Jesus. The word was immediately. Wasn't it? That was the key word. It was, there was an immediacy. There's only one way a disciple responds to his Lord, and that's quickly. My mom used to tell me, delayed obedience is disobedience. I'm like, like yes, mama. <laughs> okay. um, Psalm 119.60 says, I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Isn't that the call of a disciple? I hasten and I do not delay to keep your commandments. You see, our discipleship should be characterized by immediacy. That's the last point. I want you to write it down that way. Characterize your discipleship with immediacy. Immediacy is the concept of being close in proximity and quick in obedience. We're close with Christ so we can be quick about the things of Christ. And that's what it means to have immediacy with our Savior. I'm close to him and I'm quick for him. And that's what we need to be about as Christians. So just two final thoughts. If you're not saved in this room... You shouldn't wait for a sign. Right? If you're, somebody, you're not a Christian in here, it's like, don't, we're not waiting for signs. If God would give me a sign, then I'll turn and I'll follow him. He did. His name is Jesus. And he came from heaven and was clothed in humanity. And we have an entire sequence of gospels and entire Old Testament that looks forward to his arrival, the whole New Testament that talks about his arrival and life after his departure, and then we have the revelation that teaches us about his coming again and him restoring all things to himself. Like, here's your sign, that he is Christ who has come, and he's come for sinners, and he's calling you to repent from your sins and place your trust in him. And if you're a disciple in this room, like if you're saved, right? if you're a Christian, if you're a disciple in this room, you shouldn't be waiting on signs. You shouldn't be waiting on open doors either. I know so many Christians say, I'm just waiting for an open door to make a disciple. I'm just waiting for the right time and the right scenario and the, the perfect opportune moment. Can you describe the perfect opportune moment? If that perfect opportune moment popped up, you would find a reason to not take advantage of that perfect opportune moment, wouldn't you? Because in your mind, what you're thinking is a perfect opportune moment is just an ambiguous idea and definition in your mind of what it would be like in a perfect scenario to make a disciple, and that will never happen. But what, what does happen is this. Jesus says in John 10, 9, I am the door. You want an open door? Jesus says, I'm the door. Okay? And if you're in a relationship with Christ, the door is always open. And the door, as a matter of fact, in John 10, 9 says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. Well, don't you want to people to go in through the door and find green pasture? 
And until Christ comes back and receives his church, until the gates of hell are closed and the gates of eternity are closed, the door is always open for people to come know him. Jesus says in Revelations that I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, there I will dine with him and he with me. The door is always open, and your mission is to lead people to the door that is Christ. And every opportunity, every day is an open door opportunity for you to make disciples. Church, it's time to go. It's time to go make disciples. Let's pray. God, we do pray in a real way that we know you. We just don't know about you. We just don't know of you that we know you. And we can know you because you've drawn us to yourself. You say, anyone who knows the Father knows me. And God, because we know God, we know you, we're filled with your Holy Spirit at our salvation. You've given us your word and illuminated it to our eyes that we would know you. God, I pray that as a church, our knowledge of you didn't come from culture, it didn't come from societal understandings of who Christ is, but it comes from the word of God. God, your very word to us. And God, that it is manifested in its realities and in its applications through the community, through the teaching of your word, through this church community. God, and through our expression and our application of your word, that all those things show us what it means to follow you. And as we would imitate other people, God, as we would truly look at people worthy of imitating, as Paul says, we would follow them. God, I pray that the pastors here and the life group leaders here and all of those who fill the role of deacon at our church would be worthy of imitating, that people, if they look around and ask, well, who, who, could, who is following Christ? They would look at all the leaders at our church and many of the people who go to our church and they would say they are following Jesus. Help us live that way. God, help us not be ambiguous about the way that we define a disciple. God, your word is clear on what it means to be a disciple. And I just pray that we would uh, understand it, that we would, uh, in our own hearts, and our own minds, come to a firm understanding and grasp a uh, proper definition of a disciple. And that God, at the end of the day, that we would respond with immediacy, that our life would be marked by the immediate response to all things concerning your will, that every moment is an open door, and every day is a day to continue the mission that you have saved us to continue here as we await your return. So God, we, we say Maranatha, we want you to come back, Jesus, but until then, we're here to accomplish a mission that you have saved us for. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.